Um, the Empire Strikes Back. How many of you have seen that? Okay, if you haven't, I'm sorry, I'm about to ruin it. Uh, so, it's, it's near the end of the movie, and Luke, you know, this, this Jedi in training, he's, he, he leaves his training because his friends are in danger, and so he goes and he faces who? Darth Vader. The man who killed his father. And so in this, this fight, they're fighting and, and they get near the end and his hand gets cut off. Sorry, kids. His hand gets cut off and he's, he's backing away and Darth Vader is there trying to tempt him, saying, join me, join me, come with me. And then he says, did Obi-Wan ever tell you about your father? And he says, yeah, I know. Obi-Wan told me you killed my father. And then Darth Vader looks at him and he says, I am your father and everyone gasped because they were shocked because for for nearly two full movies we believed this lie and we see this character who had believed this lie and everyone around him had been supporting the lie obi-wan had been supporting the lie yoda had been supporting the lie and people had been supporting this lie that he believed and then he hears this this news and he knows somewhere that it's true and he says no yells it out and then the movie comes to kind of a dark a dark close with the rest of the events that happen well here we have this man who's being lied to and you have people around who 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 love him and, and they think for his sake let's keep lying to him let's keep supporting that let's keep building that up because if i tell him the truth he can't handle it but if i lie he's going to be better off and so even though it's hard, I will lie to him. And then they, they leave him devastated when he finally finds out the truth. And the thing is that this is essentially the same thing that people think we are doing with the gospel. Have you ever heard that? The gospel, it's just a lie. It's just something you tell each other to make yourselves feel better. It's just something, uh, you know, who, who was it? You know, the, the opium for the masses. Religion is the opium for the masses. And you hear that. And you hear people saying, this, this can't possibly be true. It might have been started with good intentions, but it doesn't represent the truth. Or maybe it's just a misunderstanding. Or maybe something happened, but it's ultimately people say this is just a lie. And that's the same thing that people are telling the Thessalonians here in part of this passage. And Paul is having to respond to this. And when we read through it, I, I want you to listen and hear the complaints behind what Paul is saying. Because here, when we read through it, what you're going to hear is you're going to hear that, that people are telling the Thessalonians, they're saying, Paul is a liar. Silas, Timothy, they're liars. They just made this up. It was a mistake. They're doing it for greed. They're doing it so they can get something from you. It's all just misunderstood. It's just an error. And Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that they can trust the gospel. They can trust the gospel. And in our passage, he uses his own life and his own ministry to the Thessalonians as an example to show them why. Now, something that, that you need to know. Paul is not writing here to unbelievers. If he was, he would use a different approach. He would use a different line of reasoning. Like you see several different times in the book of Acts. He uses a different line of reasoning for the people. 
And just in the same way, we might do that. If, if I wasn't at a church, if I was at a college or something like that, you know, we might talk about the fact that the Bible is the single most reliable ancient document in existence. That the New Testament has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work. There are over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts. There are 10,000 Latin manuscripts, 9,300 manuscripts in other ancient languages because in ancient times it was so prolific and it was protected and we compare those manuscripts. Or if I was talking to unbelievers, we might, we might talk about the fact that the Bible has stood the test of every form of criticism brought against it. Philosophically, archaeologically, the archaeologists are still finding things and they say, oh, you know how we said that you guys were crazy, that the Bible mentioned this person and they don't exist? Well, guess what? We just found out they actually do exist. We might talk about the, the History Channel myths that pop up every year around Easter. They always start coming. And they have, there's, there's no evidence that can be taken seriously in those. You go look at, at, at the primary sources, and, and sometimes the primary sources aren't even there. You know, the Horus myth, this thing that goes around. Not, those things aren't credible. And they don't have anything in common with the Christian Bible. But that's not the line of reasoning that we're going to be going through this morning. Because Paul's not writing to unbelievers. Here, he's writing to Christians who are experiencing the beginnings of persecution for their faith and the assurance that they need in their scriptures and in the gospel accounts from the apostles is a different kind of assurance than an apologist might give. And we need that same assurance today. Because when you're hurting, when you're scared, when you face persecution for the sake of the gospel, whatever form it takes, you need to hear something else. You need a word to your heart. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 16, that's going to be uh, page 1255 in your pew Bible. 1255 in your pew Bible. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 16. But before we read that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be here. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts through your word that we might be fed and we might be changed. In Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children." So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you 
to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. So as we begin reading through this, and you hear Paul saying again, believers, 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 you can hear, you know, he's, he's writing this letter to believers, and he wants them to know that contrary to what some people in Thessalonica have been saying, contrary to what they've been saying, the Thessalonians can trust this gospel. I hope you heard it as we went through how he said our, our coming wasn't in vain. We suffered. We've been shamefully treated. There was conflict. But this, it, it doesn't spring from error or impurity or attempt to deceive. You can hear that. You can hear what people are saying about Paul and the others. You can hear what people are saying about the gospel. And here Paul is saying, no, you can trust it. And the first thing that he shows, using his life as an example, is he shows that you can trust the gospel because it thrives, even in persecution. Verses 1 through 2, he says, You yourselves know our coming to you was not in vain. And he says, even though we'd already suffered, been shamefully treated at Philippi, but we had boldness to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Even in Thessalonica, there was conflict. Now, what happened at Philippi? Well, that's where Paul uh, was walking, and there was a young slave girl who had a a demon who was uh, allowing her somehow to, uh, if not predict the future, get get very close. And the people were, uh, her owners were using her to, to make a lot of money. And so... Uh, Paul cast the demon out. And when her owners saw that the demon was gone, they were mad and they began to stir people up against Paul and the others. They attacked him. They threw them in jail. Well, they got out and, and eventually they moved on and they ended up in Thessalonica and it started off well, but then some people who were in the city, they became jealous of the response that people were having to the gospel. And so they got a mob together and they started playing on people's fear of the emperor and they started coming against Paul and his companions, and, and they were stirring it up so much that, that uh, the, the officials in the city finally had to come and, and step in. And Jason, who was hosting Paul and Silas and Timothy, he, uh, he essentially posted bail for them. He gave them money, gave money to the city. And, uh, and then they snuck the, the Apostle Paul, they snuck him and his companions out at night. That's how dangerous that situation was. And yet... Paul is saying that the gospel still spread. He says their coming wasn't in vain. The gospel thrived. Even in the midst of all of this conflict, even in the midst of suffering, Paul's still writing to the church in Philippi because it's still there and it's still thriving. Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica because it's still there and it's thriving. And we know that it's thriving because, for one thing, this is a letter of encouragement, This isn't a letter of rebuke. It's not like 1 Corinthians. It's not like Galatians where Paul's saying, what are you guys thinking? Paul's writing them and he's saying, good job, keep going, stay in the Lord. The gospel is thriving, even in persecution. 
And we actually see the same thing still happening today, where the gospel thrives in persecution. Open Doors is a, a nonprofit that works with the persecuted church. And uh, one of the things that they say is they say that believers in the persecuted church around the world often don't wish or pray for their trials to end. In fact, the number one request Open Doors receives from persecuted believers is prayer. But they don't ask us to pray that they will be removed from persecution. Time and again, persecuted believers tell us that persecution builds the church and their witness. Instead, persecuted believers ask us to pray with them that they will stand strong and witness with faithfulness. The gospel thrives even in persecution. And this should even be a comfort to us because even if you are persecuted, the gospel will thrive. And that very thriving of the gospel shows that it's alive, that you can trust it, that you can trust the God who upholds it. Next, Paul goes on and he shows them that the source of the gospel is divine. You can trust the gospel because the source is divine. And in verses 3 through 4 and then a little bit later in verse 13, Just to paraphrase, he basically says, we weren't trying to trick you. Contrary to what people are saying, we weren't trying to trick you. It's not even our gospel. It's God's gospel. That's why he says things like, we have been approved by God. Well, you don't have to be approved by God if it's your own message of your own creation. He says they are entrusted with the gospel. You're not not entrusted with something that's already yours, that you already have, that you've produced. He's saying, this isn't our gospel. We're not the source. We're just the messengers. And you can trust it because you can trust the source. Now, if you ever wonder why the source might matter when it comes to trustworthiness, in 1998, there was a medical journal called The Lancet. And it published a research paper that linked the combination of the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, that linked it to colitis and autism spectrum disorders. Andrew Wakefield was the author of that paper. Turns out he had a lot of undeclared conflicts of interest. Uh, He he falsified a lot of his evidence and and twisted what evidence he did have. And he wrote this fraudulent paper for the journal. He was eventually found guilty of serious professional misconduct. He was stripped of his license to uh, to practice medicine in the UK. And his paper has been described as perhaps the most damaging medical hoax of the last 100 years. And here's why. Because measles, mumps, and rubella are a big deal. And if people refuse the vaccine because they think it might cause these things, they can get sick with this viral disease. It can lead to pneumonia, to seizures, brain damage, deafness, infertility, blindness, heart defects. Uh, this was, this was b- before this time, my, but my aunt is actually uh, mentally handicapped because uh, when my grandma was pregnant, she, she got the measles and it affected the, the baby, it affected my aunt as she was developing in the womb. This is a very, very serious thing. And the people who were deceived by Wakefield, they put their trust in a bad source. Sources matter. Sources matter when it comes to trust. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, that the source of the gospel, it isn't men. In verse 13, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. That's what it really is. So you can trust the gospel because of the source. He goes on to show that the gospel's purpose 
is God's glory. At the, the last half of verse 4, on through verse 6, he talks about how they've been approved by God, they've been entrusted with the gospel, and then he says, we, we speak, but we don't speak to please man. We speak to please God. And he goes on talking about we're not seeking glory from people. We, we want to bring glory to God. The gospel is a theocentric gospel. It's not the, the big words, but theocentric. It's God-centered. It's not man-centered. It is a God-centered gospel, and it is for, its purpose is for God's glory. Paul's not sitting here saying, hey, we need uh, millions of dollars for a private jet so we can get around. You know, this persecution stuff's getting, getting crazy. No, he says, this is, we're not looking for your approval. This is all about God. In fact, on, on, uh, a lot of times on Sunday mornings, what do we say? We say, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Say that with me. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When we do that, we're just affirming what, what people like Paul have known and, and what the Holy Spirit has woven into Scripture all throughout the years, that the gospel is, is about God's glory. John Piper, he says, the very thing that even satisfies our soul actually is glorifying God and enjoying Him, enjoying the world that He made, living in the world according to the way He designed us to live. And so this gospel, it's, it's not about Paul, it's not about Silas, it's not about Timothy. The purpose isn't to make themselves look good or to get them famous or to get them rich. That's why you can trust it. Because the purpose is God's glory. The purpose is to bring glory to someone else, not to them. And so you can trust them. You can trust this gospel because they're not there to flatter. They're there to share uh, the gospel about the glory of God, to bring people into relationship with God and to be worshiping God. Well, Paul goes on, and you see that the gospel produces self-sacrifice. You see what he says in verse 7? He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, I have three kids. I haven't nursed any of them, but I've talked to my wife about it. And I've seen the sacrifices that she's made. I've seen her get up at all times of the night. I've seen her interrupt her schedule and change everything that she has to do. I've seen uh, even, you know, where she might be in public, feeding one of our children. And, and you see the looks and the, and the people, and, and, she has, and she endures this for the sake of our kids. And she sacrifices so, so much. In fact, I'm not sure if there are many other examples of, of self-sacrifice quite like this. And what's incredible is not only does this require so much gentleness, so much patience, so much love, and so much self-sacrifice, but what's incredible is that, that that relationship with your child, even at such a young age, that's critical in the life of a child to enable them to trust, to enable them to have that attachment, to enable them to have some of these things. And what Paul is saying here is that Paul has been changed by the gospel to the point where he used to try and murder these people. And now he says, like a nursing mother, I care for you. Like a nursing mother, the gospel has produced the kind of self-sacrifice that I would give up my life for you. I would give up everything for you. He's sacrificing his own desires. He even says, he says, Paul was a, see, Paul was a tent maker. And he came into the city and he didn't come in and say, support me, feed me, do all this stuff. He, he, and he even says, he said, I could have as an apostle. 
But he says, we worked night and day, in verse 9, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He did it because he loved them. And he wanted them to know God, to love God, and because that gospel produced in him that kind of self-sacrifice, just like it still does today. But then he goes on, and he brings another side to that analogy. Verses 10 through 12, he he says uh, in verse 11 there, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So then he starts bringing in this other imagery. And he says, the gospel produced this kind of self-sacrifice for me. But then he's also saying, but the gospel also, it will bring encouragement. It will bring comfort. It will bring conviction. And he says, it's like a father. Now, some of you might not have had a great father. And so you hear this illustration. You're like, I sure hope not. I had a great father. So this is, this is uh, an easy one. It makes a lot of sense to me because a good father knows this balance of when to encourage the child to say, keep going, you can do it, it's okay. When to comfort the child to say, everything's going to be okay. And, and when to hold the child accountable to say, you, you're a member of this family and we don't act that way. And I expect more for you. Walk in a manner worthy of your family. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And a good father knows this balance. And as you, as you have that balance, that produces trust then as well. And Paul is saying the gospel is like this. It's made him like a father to the Thessalonians. It's the gospel that enables him to offer these things to him, just as it enables us to offer them to each other, to our children, in the way that God intends. The gospel brings encouragement, comfort, and conviction. But then we read on, and he starts talking about their suffering. And he says that uh, you became imitators, in verse 14, of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And here we see that the gospel actually confirms that we belong to Christ because the gospel doesn't come to suffering and say, put that aside, ignore it, it's not real. The gospel doesn't come to us when we're, when we're suffering for, for Christ and say, no, you shouldn't be doing that. You're, you're, just, you're looking the wrong way. You're living the wrong way if, that, if you're suffering for Jesus. No, the gospel actually comes and says, oh, are you suffering? Guess what? You are suffering like Jesus suffered. You're suffering like your brothers and sisters have suffered. If you are being persecuted for the name of Christ, guess what? You are in Christ. That's part of the gospel. It's confirming that you, when you go through this, it's confirming that you belong to Christ. That when you're suffering for Jesus' sake, you're learning to identify with the one who suffered for us. Helps us to realize that we have the life of Christ inside of us. It it sanctifies us. Helps us to realize what has actually happened in our conversion. And if you wonder what actually happened in our conversion, C.S. Lewis, he writes, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. 
my own will shall become yours. And when we are suffering for Jesus' sake, we're seeing this confirmed in us. We're seeing this process where Jesus is showing us, I want all of you. I want everything. I want to make you like me. We're suffering for the same Jesus who said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, guess what? They will also persecute you. And that suffering can show us that we are following our teacher. The last thing that we see in here is Paul starts talking about the judgment that's coming. He's talking about these people who displease God and oppose all mankind in verse 16 by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now this is such an interesting verse because Paul is talking as one, he could have put himself in that at one point. He would have described himself as one who displeased God and opposed all mankind. He would have described himself as one who hindered the gospel from going to the Gentiles, who hindered people from being saved. He would have described himself as one upon whom God's wrath would come. And when you think about it, how wicked would God be if he let wickedness go unpunished? And here he's talking about people who are attacking God's children. How wicked a father would he be if he let that go unpunished, if he let that go unanswered. And we know, just like Paul, as we're looking through this, we know, just like Paul, we were on the other side of that as well. So here we see the justice of God. We see that God is a good judge. And we can look forward to his righteous judgment, but we can only look forward to it. Reading this, we can only look forward to it because we also know God's mercy. And reading these words from Paul should comfort the Thessalonians, knowing that God will act justly, and also that he will have mercy. And these words should comfort us too, reading this, knowing that God will act justly, that there will be an end someday to the persecution of those who are in Christ. There will be an end someday to the persecution that our brothers and sisters suffer. There will be an end to the persecution of of when you go to school and you say, and someone asks you if you're a Christian, or someone asks why you prayed before your meal, and they ridicule you. If you're at work and you make a decision because you say, I'm going to honor God in my decision, I'm going to do it this way. And you have a blowback on that because you didn't take the dishonest path, you didn't take the shortcut. There will be an end to that someday. But when we see this, it should also drive us to the cross where justice and mercy, where holiness and love meet. Tim Keller says, only in Jesus Christ do we see how the untamable infinite God can become a baby and a loving Savior. On the cross, we see how both the love and the holiness of God can be fulfilled at once. And this is where Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians should be leading them. This is where this this end of this part of the passage, this end on on judgment should lead them, is it should lead them to the cross, straight into the arms of Jesus. Because as you look through all of this, what's the common thread? It's Jesus. Paul, who has been changed by Jesus Christ, declares the gospel of Jesus Christ the gospel that thrives in persecution, the gospel whose source is divine, the gospel that brings glory to God, the gospel that produces self-sacrifice, the gospel that brings encouragement, 
comfort and conviction. The gospel that confirms that we belong to Christ all the while declaring God's justice and his mercy. And when we experience times that we're, we're picked on or, or we experience troubles in life because of our faith and we, we hear people coming and, and saying, this whole thing, <clears throat> you know it's just made up, right? You know it's just a lie. Sure, we can go back to some of those facts that I mentioned at the beginning, but really what we should do is we should see the Jesus who ties all of this together and know that we can trust the Jesus of this gospel. We can trust Jesus, who is the source of this gospel, the incarnate word, the word made flesh, who lived among us, who died for us, who rose for us, who loves us with the kind of love that can't change, can't be lost. It's not based on the ups and downs of our life. It's not based on how well we live. It's not based on how strongly I happen to believe this right now. It's the kind of love that not even death not even death can take away from you. That's the source of our trust. That's, that's where we put our trust. And when these things come against us, we put our trust in the gospel, knowing that we're putting our trust in Jesus Christ, who loves us with an undying love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us in times that we are weak, that you would strengthen us. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, reaffirm your word in our hearts again and again and again. And when we feel weak, help us to rest on the fact that you are strong. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.